0: part two of the lady of the shroud by bram stoker this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by thomas copeland part two of the lady of the shroud ernest roger halbert melton's record january fourth nineteen oh seven the reading of uncle roger's will is over father got a duplicate of mr trent's letter to me and the cable and two telegrams pasted into this record We both waited patiently till the third. That is, we did not say anything. The only impatient member of our family was my mother. She did say things, and if old Trent had been here, his ears would have been red. She said what ridiculous nonsense it was, delaying the reading of the will and keeping the heir waiting for the arrival of an obscure person who wasn't even a member of the family, inasmuch as he didn't bear the name. I don't think it's quite respectful to one who is day to be head of the house. I thought Father was weakening in his patience when he said, True, my dear, true, and got up and left the room. Sometime afterwards, when I passed the library, I heard him walking up and down. Father and I went up to town on the afternoon of Wednesday, January 2nd. We stayed, of course, at Claridge's, where we always stay when we go to town. Mother wanted to come too, but Father thought it better not she would not agree to stay at home till we both promised to send her separate telegrams after the reading at five minutes to eleven we entered mr trent's office father would not go a moment earlier as he said it was bad form to seem eager at any time but most of all at the reading of a will it was a rotten grind for we had to be walking all over the neighborhood for half an hour before it was time not to be too early when we went into the room we found there general sir colin McKelpie and a big man very bronzed whom i took to be rupert st leger not a very creditable connection to look at i thought he and old McKelpie took care to be in time rather low i thought it mr st leger was reading a letter he had evidently come in but lately for though he seemed to be eager about it he was only at the first page and i could see that there were many sheets he did not look up when we came in or till he had finished the letter, and you may be sure that neither I nor my father, who as head of the house should have had more respect from him, took the trouble to go to him. After all, he is a pauper and a wastrel, and he has not the honour of bearing our name. The general, however, came forward and greeted us both cordially. He evidently had forgotten, or pretended to have, the discourteous way he once treated me, for he spoke to me quite in a friendly way, I thought more warmly than he did to father. I was pleased to be spoken to so nicely, for, after all, whatever his manners may be, he is a distinguished man, has won the B.C. and a baronetcy. He got the latter not long ago, after the frontier war in India. I was not, however, led away into cordiality myself. I had not forgotten his rudeness, and I thought that he might be sucking up to me i knew that when i had my dear uncle roger's many millions i should be a rather important person and of course he knew it too so i got even with him for his former impudence when he held out his hand i put one finger in it and said how do he got very red and turned away father and he had ended by glaring at each other so neither of us was sorry to be done with him all the time mr st leger did not seem to see or hear anything but went on reading his letter i thought the old mac was going to bring him into the matter between us for as he turned away i heard him say something under his breath it sounded like help but mr s did not hear he certainly took no notice of it as the mac s and mr s sat quite silent neither looking at us And as father was sitting on the other side of the room with his chin in his hand, and as I wanted to show that I was indifferent to the two S's, I took out this notebook and went on with the record, bringing it up to this moment. The record continued. When I had finished writing, I looked over at Rupert. When he saw us, he jumped up and went over to father and shook his hand quite warmly. Father took him very coolly. Rupert, however, did not seem to see it it came towards me heartily i happened to be doing something else at the moment and at first i did not see his hand but just as i was looking at it the clock struck eleven whilst it was striking mr trent came into the room close behind him came his clerk carrying a locked tin box there were two other men also he bowed to us all in turn beginning with me i was standing opposite the door the others were scattered about Father sat still, but Sir Colin and Mr. St. Leger rose. Mr. Trent did not shake hands with any of us, not even me. Nothing but his respectful bow. That is the etiquette for an attorney, I understand, on such formal occasions. He sat down at the end of the big table in the centre of the room and asked us to sit round. Father, of course, as head of the family, took the seat at his right hand. Sir Colin and St. Leger went to the other side the former taking the seat next to the attorney. The general knows, of course, that a baronet takes precedence of a ceremony. I may be a baronet some day myself and have to know these things. The clerk took the key which his master handed to him, opened the tin box, and took from it a bundle of papers tied with red tape. This he placed before the attorney and put the empty box behind him on the floor. Then he and the other man sat at the far end of the table, The latter took out a big notebook and several pencils and put them before him he was evidently a shorthand writer mr trent removed the tape from the bundle of papers which he placed a little distance in front of him he took a sealed envelope from the top broke the seal opened the envelope and from it took a parchment in the folds of which were some sealed envelopes which he laid in a heap in front of the other paper then he unfolded the parchment and laid it before him with the outside page up he fixed his glasses and said gentlemen the sealed envelopes which you have seen me open is endorsed my last will and testament roger melton june 1906 this document holding it up is as follows i roger melton of openshaw grange in the county of dorset of number one hundred and twenty-three berkeley square london and of the castle of the in the land of the blue mountains Being of sound mind, do make this my last will and testament on this day, Monday, the 11th day of the month of June, in the year of our Lord, 1906, at the office of my old friend and attorney, Edward Bingham Trent, in number 176, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London, hereby revoking all other wills that I may have formerly made, and giving this as my sole and last will, making dispositions of my property as follows. 1 to my kinsman and nephew ernest halbert melton esq justice of the peace humcroft the county of Salop, for his sole use and benefit the sum of twenty thousand pounds sterling free of all duties taxes and charges whatever to be paid out of my five centum bonds of the city of montreal canada two to my respected friend and colleague as co-trustee to the will of my late sister patience late widow of the late captain rupert st ledger who predeceased her major-general sir colin alexander McKelpie, baronet holder of the victoria cross knight commander of the order of the bath of croome in the county of ross scotland a sum of twenty thousand pounds sterling free of all taxes and charges whatsoever to be paid out of my five centum bonds of the city of toronto canada three to miss janet McKelpie, presently residing at croome in the county of ross scotland the sum of twenty thousand pounds sterling, free of all duties, taxes, and charges whatsoever, to be paid out of my five per centum bonds of the London City Council. Four, to the various persons, charities, and trustees named in the schedule attached to this will, and marked A, the various sums mentioned therein, all free of duties and taxes and charges whatsoever. Here Mr. Trent read out the list here following and announced for our immediate understanding of the situation the total amount as two hundred and fifty thousand pounds many of the beneficiaries were old friends comrades dependents, and servants some of them being left quite large sums of money and specific objects such as curios and pictures five to my kinsman and nephew ernest roger haltward melton presently living in the house of his father at humcroft salop the sum of ten thousand pounds sterling 6. To my old and valued friend, Edward Bingham Trent, of 176 Lincolns Inn Fields, sum of £20,000 sterling, free from all duties, taxes, and charges whatsoever, to be paid out of my 5% and bonds of the city of Manchester, England. 7. To my dear nephew, Rupert St. Ledger, only son of my dear sister, Patience Melton, by her marriage with Captain Rupert St. Ledger, the sum of £1,000 sterling i also bequeath to the said rupert st ledger a further sum conditional upon his acceptance of the terms of a letter addressed to him marked b and left in the custody of the above edward bingham trent and which letter is an integral part of this my will in case of the non-acceptance of the conditions of such letter i devise and bequeath the whole of the sums and properties reserved therein to the executors herein appointed colin alexander mckelpy and edward bingham trent in trust to distribute the same in accordance with the terms of the letter in the present custody of edward bingham trent marked c and now deposited sealed with my seal in the sealed envelope containing my last will to be kept in the custody of the said edward bingham trent and which said letter c is also an integral part of my will and in case any doubt should arise as to my ultimate intention as to the disposal of my property the above-mentioned executors are to have full power to arrange and dispose all such matters as may seem best to them without further appeal and if any beneficiary under this will shall challenge the same or any part of it or dispute the validity thereof he shall forfeit to the general estate the bequest made herein to him and any such bequest shall cease and be void to all intents and purposes whatsoever Eight for proper compliance with laws and duties connected with testamentary proceedings and to keep my secret trusts secret i direct my executors to pay all death estate settlement legacy succession or other duties charges impositions and assessments whatever on the residue of my estate beyond the bequests already named by the scale charged in the case of most distant relatives or strangers in blood nine i hereby appoint as my executors major general sir colin alexander McKelpie, baronet of Croome in the county of ross and edward bingham trent attorney at law of one hundred and seventy six lincoln's inn fields london west central with full power to exercise their discretion in any circumstance which may arise in the carrying out of my wishes as expressed in this will as reward for their services in this capacity as executors they are to receive each out of the general estate a sum of one hundred thousand pounds sterling, free of all duties and impositions whatsoever. 12. The two memoranda contained in the letters marked B and C are integral parts of this my last will, are ultimately, at the probate of the will, to be taken as clauses ten and eleven of it. The envelopes are marked B and C on both envelope and contents, and the contents of each is headed thus, B to be read as clause ten of my will, and the other c to be read as clause eleven of my will thirteen should either of the above-mentioned executors die before the completion of the above year and a half from the date of the reading of my will or before the conditions rehearsed in letter c the remaining executors shall have all and several the rights and duties entrusted by my will to both and if both executors should die then the matter of interpretation and execution of all matters in connection with this my last will shall rest with the lord chancellor of england for the time being or with whomsoever he may appoint for the purpose this my last will is given by me on the first day of january in the year of our lord one thousand nine hundred and seven roger melton we andrew rossiter and john colson here in the presence of each other and of the testator have seen the testator roger melton sign and seal this document In witness thereof we hereby set our names, Andrew Rossiter, clerk of 9 Primrose Avenue, London, W.C., John Colson, caretaker of 176 Lincoln's Inn Fields, and verger of St. Tabitha's Church, Clerkenwell, London. When Mr. Trent had finished the reading, he put all the papers together and tied them up in a bundle again with a red tape. Holding the bundle in his hand, he stood up, saying as he did so, "'That is all, gentlemen,' unless any of you wish to ask me any questions in which case i shall answer of course to the best of my power i shall ask you sir colin to remain with me as we have to deal with some matters or to arrange a time when we may meet to do so and you also mr st ledger as there is this letter to submit to you it is necessary that you should open it in the presence of the executors but there is no necessity that any one else should be present the first to speak was my father. Of course, as a county gentleman of position at estate who is sometimes asked to take the chair at sessions, of course, when there is not anyone with a title present, he found himself under the duty of expressing himself first. Old McKelpie has superior rank, but this was a family affair in which my father is head of the house, whilst old McKelby is only an outsider brought into it and then only to the distaff side by the wife of a younger brother of the man who married into our family. Father spoke with the same look on his face as when he asks important questions of witnesses at quarter sessions. I should like some points elucidated. The attorney bowed. He gets his one hundred twenty thou anyway, so he can afford to be oily. suave, I suppose he would call it so father looked at a slip of paper in his hand and asked how much is the amount of the whole estate the attorney answered quickly and i thought rather rudely he was red in the face and didn't bow this time i suppose a man of his class hasn't more than a very limited stock of manners that sir i am not at liberty to tell you and i may say that i would not if i could is it a million said father again he was angry this time, and even redder than the old attorney. The attorney said in answer very quietly this time Ah, that's cross examining. Let me say, sir, that no one can know that until the accountants to be appointed for the purpose have examined the affairs of the testator up to date. Mr Rupert Saleg, who was looking all this time angrier than even the attorney or my father, though at what he had to be angry about i can't imagine struck his fist on the table and rose up as if to speak but as he got sight of both old McKelpie and the attorney sat down again memorandum those three seem to agree too well i must keep a sharp eye on them i didn't think of this part any more at the time for father asked another question which interested me much may i ask why the other matters of the will are not shown to us the attorney wiped his spectacles carefully with a big silk bandana handkerchief before he answered simply because each of the two letters marked b and c is enclosed with instructions regarding their opening and the keeping secret of their contents i shall call your attention to the fact that both envelopes are sealed and that the testator and both witnesses have signed their names across the flap of each envelope. I shall read them. The letter marked B, directed to Rupert St. Ledger, is thus endorsed. This letter is to be given to Rupert St. Ledger by the trustees, and is to be opened by him in their presence. He is to take such copy or make such notes as he may wish, and is then to hand the letter with envelope to the executors who are at once to read it, Each of them being entitled to make copy or notes desirous of so doing. The letter is then to be replaced in its envelope, and letter and envelope are to be placed in another envelope to be endorsed on outside as to its contents, and to be signed across the flap by both the executors and by the said Rupert St. Ledger. Signed Roger Melton, 1606 the letter marked c directed to edward bingham trent is thus endorsed this letter directed to edward bingham trent is to be kept by him unopened for a term of two years after the reading of my last will unless said period is earlier terminated by either the acceptance or refusal of rupert St. ledger to accept the conditions mentioned in my letter to him marked b which he is to receive and read in the presence of my executors at the same meeting as but subsequent to the reading of the clauses, except those to be ultimately numbers 10 and 11 of my last will. This letter contains instructions as to what both the executors and the said Rupert St. Ledger are to do when such acceptance or refusal of the said Rupert St. Ledger has been made known, or if he omit or refuse to make any such acceptance or refusal at the end of two years next after my decease. Signed, Roger Melton, one six o six. When the attorney had finished reading the last letter, he put it carefully in his pocket. Then he took the other letter in his hand and stood up. "Mister Rupert sent Ledger," he said. "Please to open this letter and in such a way that all present may see that the memorandum at top of the contents is given as B, to be read as clause ten of my will." St. Leger rolled up his sleeves and cuffs, just as if he were going to perform some sort of prestidigitation. It was very theatrical and ridiculous. Then, his wrists being quite bare, he opened the envelope and took out the letter. We all saw it quite well. It was folded with the first page outward, and on the top was written a line just as the attorney said. In obedience to a request from the attorney, he laid both letter and envelope on the table in front of him the clerk then rose up and after handing a piece of paper to the attorney went back to his seat mr trent having written something on the paper asked us all who were present even the clerk and the shorthand man to look at the memorandum on the letter and what was written on the envelope and to sign the paper which ran we the signatories of this paper hereby declare that we have seen the sealed letter marked b and enclosed in the will of roger melton opened in the presence of us all including mr edward bingham trent and sir colin alexander mckelpy and we declare that the paper therein contained was headed b to be read as clause ten of my will and that there were no other contents in the envelope in attestation of which we in the presence of each other append our signatures The attorney motioned to my father to begin. Father is a cautious man, and he asked for a magnifying glass, which was shortly brought to him by a clerk, for whom the clerk in the room called. Father examined the envelope all over very carefully, and also the memorandum at top of the paper. Then, without a word, he signed the paper. Father is a just man. Then we all signed. The attorney folded the paper and put it in an envelope before closing it he passed it round and we all saw that it had not been tampered with father took it out and read it and then put it back then the attorney asked us all to sign it across the flap which we did then he put the sealing wax on it and asked father to seal it with his own seal he did so then he and McKelpie sealed it also with their own seals then he put it in another envelope which he sealed himself and he and McKelpie signed it across the flap. Then father stood up, and so did I. So did the two men, the clerk and the shorthand writer. Father did not say a word till we got out into the street. We walked along, and presently we passed an open gate into the fields. He turned back, saying to me, Come in here. There is no one about, and we can be quiet. I want to speak to you. When we sat down on a seat with none other near it, father said, you are a student of the law what does all that mean i thought it a good occasion for an epigram so i said one word bilk hm said father that is so far as you and i are concerned you with a beggarly ten thousand and i with twenty but what is or will be the effect of those secret trusts oh that i said will i dare say be all right uncle roger evidently did not intend the older generation to benefit too much by his death but he only gave rupert st one thousand pounds whilst he gave me ten that looks as if he had more regard for the direct line of course father interrupted me but what was the meaning of a further sum i don't know father there was evidently some condition which he was to fulfil but he evidently didn't expect that he would why, otherwise, did he leave a second trust to Mr. Trent? True, said Father. Then he went on. I wonder why he left those enormous sums to Trent and Old McKelpie. They seem out of all proportion as executor's fees, unless— Unless what, Father? Unless the fortune he has left is an enormous one. That is why I asked. And that, I laughed, is why he refused to answer why ernest it must run into big figures right ho father the death duties will be annoying what a beastly swindle the death duties are why i shall suffer even on your own little estate that will do he said curtly father is so ridiculously touchy one would think he expects to live for ever presently he spoke again i wonder what are the conditions of that trust they are as important almost as the amount of the bequest, whatever it is. By the way, there seems to be no mention in the will of a residuary legatee. Ernest, my boy, we may have to fight over that. How do you make that out, father, I asked. He had been very rude over the matter of the death duties of his own estate, though it is entailed and I must inherit. So I determined to let him see that I know a good deal more than he does, of law at any rate. I fear that when we come to look into it closely that dog won't fight. In the first place, that may be all arranged in the letter to St. Leger, which is a part of the will, and if that letter should be inoperative by his refusal of the conditions, whatever they may be, then the letter to the attorney begins to work. What it is we don't know, and perhaps even he doesn't. I looked at it as well as I could and we lawmen are trained to observation but even if the instructions mentioned as being in letter c fail then the corpus of the will gives full power to trent to act just as he darn pleases he can give the whole thing to himself if he likes and no one can say a word in fact he is himself the final court of appeal Hmm," said father to himself it is a queer kind of will i take it that can override the court of chancery we shall perhaps have to try it before we are done with this with that he rose and we walked home together without saying another word my mother was very inquisitive about the whole thing women always are father and i between us told her all it was necessary for her to know i think we were both afraid that woman-like she would make trouble for us by saying or doing something injudicious. Indeed, she manifested such hostility towards Rupert St. Leger that it is quite on the cards that she may try to injure him in some way. So, when father said that he would have to go out shortly again, as he wished to consult his solicitor, I jumped up and said I would go with him, as I too should take advice as to how I stood in the matter the contents of letter marked b attached as an integral part to the last will of roger melton june 11th 1907 this letter an integral part of my last will regards the entire residue of my estate beyond the specific bequests made in the body of my will it is to appoint as residuary legatee of such will in case he may accept in due form the conditions herein laid down my dear nephew rupert st ledger only son of my sister patience melton now deceased by her marriage with captain rupert st ledger also now deceased on his acceptance of the conditions and the fulfilment of the first of them the entire residue of my estate after payments of all specific legacies and of all my debts and other obligations is to become his absolute property to be dealt with or disposed of as he may desire the following are the conditions he is to accept provisionally by letter addressed to my executors a sum of nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand pounds sterling free of all duties taxes or other imposts this he will hold for a period of six months from the date of the reading of my last will and have user of the accruements thereto calculated at the rate of ten per centum per annum which amount he shall under no circumstances be required to replace At the end of said six months, he must express in writing directed to the executors of my will, his acceptance or refusal of the other conditions herein to follow. But if he may so choose, he shall be freed to declare in writing to the executors within one week from the time of the reading of the will his wish to accept or to withdraw altogether from the responsibility of this trust. In case of withdrawal, he is to retain absolutely and for his own use the above-mentioned sum of nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand pounds sterling free of all duties taxes and imposts whatsoever making with the specific bequest of one thousand pounds a clear sum of one million pounds sterling free of all imposts and he will from the moment of the delivery of such written withdrawal cease to have any right or interest whatsoever in the further disposition of my estate under this instrument should such written withdrawal be received by my executors they shall have possession of such residue of my estate as shall remain after the payment of the above sum of nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand pounds sterling and the payment of all duties taxes assessments or imposts as may be entailed by law by its conveyance to the said Rupert St ledger and these my executors shall hold the same for the further disposal of it according to the instructions given in the letter marked c, and which is also an integral part of my last will and testament. 2. If at or before the expiration of the six months above mentioned, the said Rupertson ledger shall have accepted the further conditions herein stated, he is to have user of the entire income produced by such residue of my estate, the said income being paid to him quarterly on the usual quarter-days by the aforesaid executors, to wit major-general sir colin alexander mckelpy baronet and edward Bingham trent to be used by him in accordance with the terms and conditions hereinafter mentioned three the said rupert st ledger is to reside for a period of at least six months to begin not later than three months from the reading of my will in the castle of vissarion in the land of the blue mountains and if he fulfil the conditions imposed on him and shall thereby become possessed of the residue of my estate is to continue to reside there in part for a period of one year he is not to change his british nationality except by a formal consent of the privy council of great britain at the end of a year and a half from the reading of my will he is to report in person to my executors of the expenditure of amounts paid or due by him in the carrying out of the trust And if they are satisfied that same are in general accord with conditions named in above-mentioned letter marked C, and which is an integral part of my will, they are to record their approval on such will, which can then go for final probate and taxation, on the completion of which the said Rupert St. Ledger shall become possessed absolutely and without further act or need of the entire residue of my estate, in witness whereof, etc., signed Roger Melton this document is attested by the witnesses to the will on the same date PERSONAL AND CONFIDENTIAL memoranda made by Edward Bingham Trent in connection with the will of Roger Melton January third, nineteen 1907 The interests and issues of all concerned in the will and estate of the late Roger Melton of Openshaw Grange are so vast that in case any litigation should take place regarding the same i as the solicitor having the carriage of the testator's wishes think it well to make certain memoranda of events conversations etc not covered by documentary evidence i make the first memorandum immediately after the event whilst every detail of act and conversation is still fresh in my mind i shall also try to make such comments thereon as may serve to refresh my memory hereafter and which in case of my death may perhaps afford as opinions contemporaneously recorded, some guiding light to other, or others, who may later on have to continue and complete the tasks entrusted to me. 1. Concerning the Reading of the Will of Roger Melton When, beginning at 11 o'clock a.m. on this, the forenoon of Thursday, the third day of January 1907, I opened the will and read it in full, except the clauses contained in the letters marked B and C, there were present, in addition to myself, the following. 1. Ernest Halbert Melton, J.P., nephew of the Testator. 2. Ernest Roger Halbert Melton, son of the above. 3. Rupert St. Ledger, nephew of the Testator. 4. Major General Sir Colin Alexander McKelpie, baronet, co-executor with myself of the will. 5. Andrew Rossiter, my clerk, one of the witnesses of the Testator's will. 6. Alfred Nugent, stenographer of Messrs. Castle's office, 21, Reams Buildings, W.C. When the will had been read, Mr. E. H. Melton asked the value of the estate left by the testator, which query I did not feel empowered or otherwise able to answer, and a further query as to why those present were not shown the secret clauses of the will. I answered by reading the instructions endorsed on the envelopes of the two letters marked B and C, which were sufficiently explanatory. But lest any question should hereafter arise as to the fact that the memoranda in letters marked B and C, which were to be read as clauses 10 and 11 of the will, I caused Rupert St. Ledger to open the envelope marked B in the presence of all in the room. These all signed a paper which I had already prepared to the effect that they had seen the envelope opened, and that the memorandum marked B to be read as clause 10 of my will was contained in the envelope. Of which it was to be the sole contents mr ernest halbert melton j p before signing carefully examined with a magnifying glass for which he had asked both the envelope and the heading of the memorandum enclosed in the letter he was about to turn the folded paper which was lying on the table over by which he might have been able to read the matter of the memorandum had he so desired i at once advised him that the memorandum he was to sign dealt only with the heading of the page and not with the matter. He looked very angry but said nothing, and after a second scrutiny, signed. I put the memorandum in an envelope which we all signed across the flap. Before signing, Mr. Ernest Halbert Melton took out the paper and verified it. I then asked him to close it, which he did, and when the sealing wax was on it, he sealed it with his own seal. Sir Colin A. McKelpie and I also pended our own seals i put the envelope in another which i sealed with my own seal and my co-executor and i signed it across the flap and added the date i took charge of this when the others present had taken their departure my co-executor and i together with mr rupert st ledger who had remained at my request went into my private room here mr rupert st ledger read the memorandum marked b which is to be read as clause ten of the will He is evidently a man of considerable nerve, for his face was quite impassive as he read the document, which conveyed to him, subject to the conditions laid down, a fortune which has no equal in amount in Europe, even, so far as I know, amongst the crowned heads. When he had read it over a second time, he stood up, and said, I wish I had known my uncle better. He must have had the heart of a king i never heard of such generosity as he has shown me mr trent i see from the conditions of this memorandum or codicil or whatever it is that i am to declare within a week as to whether i accept the conditions imposed on me now i want you to tell me this must i wait a week to declare In answer, I told him that the testator's intention was manifestly to see that he had full time to consider fully every point before making formal decision and declaration. But in answer to the specific question, I could answer that he might make declaration when he would, provided it was within, or rather not after, the week named. I added, but I strongly advise you not to act hurriedly, so enormous a sum is involved that you may be sure that all possible efforts will be made by some one or other to dispossess you of your inheritance, and it will be well that everything shall be done, not only in perfect order, but with such manifest care and deliberation, that there can be no question as to your intention. Thank you, sir, he answered. I shall do as you shall kindly advise me in this, as in other things. But I may tell you now, and you too, my dear Sir Colin that I not only accept my Uncle Roger's conditions in this, but that when the time comes in the other matters, I shall accept every condition that he had in his mind, and that I may know of, in everything. He looked exceedingly in earnest, and it gave me much pleasure to see and hear him. It was just what a young man should do, who has been so generously treated. As the time had now come, I gave him the bulky letter addressed to him marked D, which I had in my safe. As I fulfilled my obligation in the matter, I said, You need not read the letter here. You can take it away with you and read it by yourself at leisure. It is your own property without any obligation whatever attached to it. By the way, perhaps it would be well if you knew. I have a copy sealed up in an envelope and endorsed to be opened if occasion should arise, but not otherwise. Will you see me tomorrow or better still dine with me alone here tonight? I should like to have a talk with you, and you may wish to ask me some questions. He answered me cordially. I actually felt touched by the way he said goodbye before he went away. Sir Colin McKelpie went with him, as St. Ledger was to drop him at the reform. Letter from Roger Melton to Rupert St. Ledger endorsed D Ray Rupert St. Ledger to be given to him by Edward Bingham Trent if and as soon as he has declared formally or informally his intention of accepting the conditions named in letter b forming clause ten of my will r m one one o seven memorandum copy sealed left in custody of e b trent to be opened if necessary as directed june eleventh nineteen o six my dear nephew when if ever you receive this you will know that with the exception of some definite bequests i have left you under certain conditions the entire bulk of my fortune a fortune so great that by its aid as a help a man of courage and ability may carve out for himself a name and place in history the specific conditions contained in clause ten of my will have to be observed for such i deem to be of service to your own fortune but herein i give my advice which you are at liberty to follow or not as you will, and my wishes which I shall try to explain fully and clearly, so that you may be in possession of my views in case you should desire to carry them out, or at least to so endeavour that the results I hope for may be ultimately achieved. First, let me explain, for your understanding and your guidance, that the power, or perhaps it had better be called the pressure, behind the accumulation of my fortune has been ambition in obedience to its compulsion i toiled early and late until i had so arranged matters that subject to broad supervision my ideas could be carried out by men whom i had selected and tested and not found wanting this was for years to the satisfaction and ultimately to the accumulation by these men of fortune commensurate in some measure to their own worth and their importance to my designs. Thus, I had accumulated, whilst still a young man, a considerable fortune. This I have, for over forty years, used sparingly as regards my personal needs, daringly with regard to speculative investments. With the latter, I took such very great care, studying the conditions surrounding them so thoroughly, that even now my schedule of bad debts or unsuccessful investments is almost a blank. Perhaps by such means things flourished with me, and wealth piled in so fast that at times I could hardly use it to advantage. This was all done as the forerunner of ambition. But I was over fifty years of age when the horizon of ambition itself opened up to me. I speak thus freely, my dear Rupert, as when you read it I shall have passed away, and not ambition, nor the fear of misunderstanding, nor even of scorn, can touch me my ventures in commerce and finance covered not only the far east but every foot of the way to it so that the mediterranean and all its opening seas were familiar to me in my journeyings up and down the adriatic i was always struck by the great beauty and seeming richness native richness of the land of the blue mountains at last chance took me into that delectable region when the balkan struggle of ninety was on one of the great voivodes came to me in secret to arrange a large loan for national purposes. It was known in financial circles of both Europe and Asia that I took an active part in the haute politique of national treasuries, and the voivode Vissarion came to me as to one able and willing to carry out his wishes. After confidential pourparlers, he explained to me that his nation was in the throes of a great crisis. As you perhaps know, The gallant little nation of the land of the Blue Mountains has had a strange history. For more than a thousand years, ever since its settlement after the disaster of Rosero, it had maintained its national independence under several forms of government. At first it had a king, whose successors became so despotic that they were dethroned. Then it was governed by its voivodes, with the combining influence of a Vladica, somewhat similar in power and function to the prince-bishops of Montenegro afterwards by a prince or as at present by an irregular elective council influenced in a modified form by the vladica who was then supposed to exercise a purely spiritual function such a council in a small poor nation did not have sufficient funds for armaments which were not immediately and imperatively necessary and therefore the voivode vissarion who had vast estates in his own possession and who was the present representative of a family which of old had been leaders in the land found it a duty to do on his own account that which the state could not do for security as to the loan which he wished to get and which was indeed a vast one he offered to sell me his whole estate if i would secure to him a right to repurchase it within a given time a time which i may say has some time ago expired he made it a condition that the sale and agreement should remain a strict secret between us as a widespread knowledge that his estate had changed hands would in all probability result in my death and his own at the hands of the mountaineers who are beyond everything loyal and were jealous to the last degree an attack by turkey was feared and new armaments were required and the patriotic voivode was sacrificing his own great fortune for the public good what a sacrifice this was he well knew for in all discussions regarding a possible change in the constitution of the blue mountains it was always taken for granted that if the principles of the constitution should change to a more personal rule his own family should be regarded as the most noble it had ever been on the side of freedom in olden time before the establishment of the council or even during the rule of the voigodes the visarion had every now and again stood out against the king or challenged the princedom the very name stood for freedom for nationality against foreign oppression and the bold mountaineers were devoted to it as in other free countries men follow the flag such loyalty was a power and a help in the land for it knew danger in every form and anything which aided the cohesion of its integers was a natural asset On every side, other powers, great and small, pressed the land, anxious to acquire its suzerainty by any means, fraud or force. Greece, Turkey, Austria, Russia, Italy, France, had all tried in vain. Russia, often hurled back, was waiting an opportunity to attack. Austria and Greece, although united by no common purpose or design, were ready to throw in their forces with whomsoever might seem most likely to be victor. Other Balkan states, too, were not lacking in desire to add the little territory of the Blue Mountains to their more ample possessions. Albania, Dalmatia, Herzegovina, Serbia, Bulgaria, looked with lustful eyes on the land, which was in itself a vast natural fortress, having close under its shelter perhaps the finest harbour between Gibraltar and the Dardanelles. But the fierce, hardy mountaineers were unconquerable. For centuries they had fought with a fervour and fury that nothing could withstand or abate attacks on their independence. Time after time, century after century, they had opposed with dauntless front invading armies sent against them. This unquenchable fire of freedom had had its effect. One and all the great powers knew that to conquer that little nation would be no mean task but rather that of a tireless giant over and over again they had fought with units against hundreds never ceasing until they had either wiped out their foes entirely or seen them retreat across the frontier in diminished numbers for many years past however the land of the blue mountains had remained unassailable for all the powers and states had feared lest the other should unite against the one who should begin the attack at the time i speak of there was a feeling throughout the blue mountains and indeed elsewhere, that Turkey was preparing for a war of offence. The objective of her attack was not known anywhere, but here there was evidence that the Turkish Bureau of Spies was in active exercise towards their sturdy little neighbour. To prepare for this, the voivode Peter Vissarion approached me in order to obtain the necessary sinews of war. The situation was complicated by the fact that the elective council was at present largely held together by the old Greek church, which was the religion of the people, and which had had since the beginning its destinies linked in a large degree with theirs. Thus it was possible that if a war should break out, it might easily become, whatever might have been its cause or beginnings, a war of creeds. This in the Balkans must be largely one of races the end of which no mind could diagnose or even guess at. I had now for some time had knowledge of the country and its people, and had come to love them both. The nobility of Vissarion's self-sacrifice at once appealed to me, and I felt that I too should like to have a hand in the upholding of such a land and such a people. They both deserved freedom. When Vissarion handed me the completed deed of sale, I was going to tear it up but he somehow recognised my intention and forestalled it he held up his hand arrestingly as he said i recognise your purpose and believe me i honour you for it from the very depths of my soul but my friend it must not be our mountaineers are proud beyond belief though they would allow me who am one of themselves and whose fathers have been in some way leaders and spokesmen amongst them for many centuries to do all that is in my power to do and what each and all they would be glad to do were the call to them, they would not accept aid from one outside themselves. My good friend, they would resent it, and might show to you, who wish us all so well, active hostility, which might end in danger or even death. That was why, my friend, I asked to put a clause in our agreement that I might have right to repurchase my estate regarding which you would fain act so generously thus it is my dear nephew rupert only son of my dear sister that i hereby charge you solemnly as you value me as you value yourself as you value honour that should it ever become known that that noble voivode peter visarion imperilled himself for his country's good and if it be of danger or evil repute to him that even for such a purpose he sold his heritage you shall at once and to the knowledge of the mountaineers though not necessarily to others reconvey to him or his heirs the freehold that he was willing to part with and that he has de facto parted with by the affluction of the time during which his right of free purchase existed this is a secret trust and duty which is between thee and me alone in the first instance a duty which i have undertaken on behalf of my heirs and which must be carried out at whatsoever cost may ensue you must not take it that it is from any mistrust of you or belief that you will fail that i have taken another measure to ensure that this my cherished idea is borne out indeed it is that the law may in case of need for no man can know what may happen after his own hand to be taken from a plough be complied with that i have in another letter written for the guidance of others directed that in case of any failure to carry out this trust death or other the direction become a clause or codicil to my will but in the meantime i wish that this be kept a secret between us two to show you the full extent of my confidence let me here tell you that the letter alluded to above is marked C. And directed to my solicitor and co-executor Edward Bingham Trent, which is finally to be regarded as Clause Eleven of my will. To which end he has my instructions, and also a copy of this letter, which is, in case of need and that only, to be opened, and is to be a guide to my wishes as to the carrying out by you of the conditions on which you inherit. End of part two. Recording by Thomas Copeland.